Hello, welcome to the Social World Podcast. My name is Dave Niven. You can keep in touch with us by going to www.socialworldpodcast.com or you can tweet us at, at Dave Niven. So I'd like to welcome you and thank you for listening and thank those of you that have been in touch. The feedback that we're getting is excellent. Thanks ever so much. Really interesting. And I'd love you to give some more. And in future, I'm going to try and read out some of your comments. Now, today's podcast is actually going to be in three parts. The first part is thoughts and information on missing children. Very poignant in light of uh, current news stories. Secondly, we have a guest today, Dr. Neil Thompson, who's an author and an e-learning developer. And DNA is going to do some work with him. And uh, I hope you agree, it'll be a very interesting interview. And thirdly, just to keep the magazine thread going, if you like, I'm going to give some small but beautifully formed stories from the social world. Things that have interested me and that I hope interests you. So welcome. With the case of the young girl in Greece who's having been found with a family that's not her own, and community and society's suspicions running very highly about how she got there, Obviously, this is another blow to um, race relations as far as the Romani community is concerned in Greece. But there's also this other matter at the moment with the apparent new evidence that the Madeleine McCann case has brought forward in Scotland Yard investigating that. It's really brought missing children to the fore again in this country. Now, whether it's to do with trafficking or whether it's to do with all the variety of other reasons that children go missing... It's still a particularly poignant and very, very difficult matter for society and uh, the agencies, the statutory agencies, if you like, to deal with. Now, I mean, our thoughts about missing and abducted children are, are all being repeated again back on the front pages of newspapers or on social media, wherever. I just thought it might be very useful to um, give a bit of a list and a bit of a, a kind of a reminder of the places that we can all go to to look for and learn about matters concerning missing children. Now, there's the um, International Centre for Missing and Exploited Children, which is uh, www.icmec.org, and they talk about the 1.8 million children who are either sold or abducted into commercial sexual activity every year. But there's also quite a Europe-wide initiative that's taking place now that involves various different organisations, mainly NGOs. But they've got places like um, www.missingchildreneurope.eu and there's a national hotline that 28 member countries and sorry 28 member organizations and 19 member states as well as Switzerland have actually signed up to and one of the things they've got is a universal european telephone number 
a hotline if you like, to report missing children. And that hotline is 116000. Now in the UK there's several organisations that actually focus on missing children. But having had a look at them, none of them are resourced in my view high enough and none of them are coordinated enough. They need far more attention. One of them is missingkids.co.uk and the other one is missingpersons.police.uk That's the UK Missing Persons Bureau and the missingkids.co.uk actually publishes pictures and details of children who've gone missing. Now, further to that, in Europe, there is a particular scheme that's now been uh, put into operation, and it's called Amber Alert. And it's uh, www.amberalert.eu. It started in Holland, and it's now a Europe-wide child rescue alert. So as soon as a child hits a level where authorities consider it that there's a chance that it's a serious case of a missing child rather than just a few hours away, they will actually put an alert out right across Europe and especially obviously in the geographical area that the child was reported missing in. Now you can follow them on Twitter as well at Amber Alert EU. So that might just be something to sort of pop into your social media and just keep an eye on. Now, in the UK in 2011, 327,000 people actually were reported missing. Now, 200,000 of them plus were under 18. We know that most return within three days. But there's increasing information that trafficked children are actually brought into the UK and then have disappeared. And there's quite a significant number of them actually, that law enforcement and other agencies are looking into. There are, of course, the inevitable human tragedies, the inevitable kind of um, domestic issues, and uh, parent abductions are a clear part of what happens when a child is reported missing. And I believe that that, that is actually getting recorded better, but statistically also the numbers are growing most are runaways, either from the, from a dysfunctional home or the care system or wherever. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And there are a few, and I, I re-emphasize this, a few actual stranger abductions that turn into the obvious tragedies and terrible headlines that we see. Now, in a recent report published by Ofsted, in February 2013, they found, I think, concerning missing children, the following findings. That there's firstly little or no reliable data on missing children. There's, there's very difficult to actually gauge numbers or characteristics from it or trends from it. Now in most areas and at national level, the data is very significantly different. So there's a no-brainer to start with. Common features of cases where the frequency of missing incidents have reduced the children's out had reduced and children's outcomes had improved 
were when, and let's state the obvious, effective multi-agency cooperation, timely and persistent family support, continuity of workers, and listening to and taking account of the voices of children. Now there, again, is a no-brainer. And all the various cases of child protection um, uh, problems, if you like, or, or places when we feel that the authorities have failed, that have, that have produced serious case review recommendations, have usually all listed one or more of all of these factors. Now, the inspectors in Ofsted saw evidence of an effective and tenacious joint working uh, between professionals to keep children safe at an operational level. So, effectively, we're back to talking about the um, flaws in strategy again. And that approach was clearly stated in this report to have been less well-developed. In nearly all of the authorities visited, there was not a full understanding at a senior level of the reasons why children go missing, and most authorities were unable to evidence the impact of their interventions. There was poor recording practices. And although staff awareness of the procedures and the protocols were variable, the compliance with those was not actually evidenced by the management. Reports to the police, that was done fairly swiftly. Safe and well checks, which the police should have done after the child returns home or is found, they weren't always evident on case files, so the recording of the safe and well checks, the return home checks, actually wasn't there. Now, in all, nearly all, local authorities, the limited evidence of effective return interviews with children seemed to undermine the capacity of professionals to learn and talk about and plan for future events where they were gauging the reasons and the risks attached to missing children. So, then you come to things that people might have guessed happened, which is placement breakdowns of children in foster care. And of the cases they tracked which wasn't a huge number, but about 30-odd of them in depth, about a third were actually uh, placement instability, if you like, was put down. Probably cases of multiple placement or very, very damaged young people who effectively couldn't be controlled, even by the best efforts of the adults around them, that effectively they just perpetually kept miss going missing or running away but the fact is, in many, many cases, they were reported to have come back again. Now then, we look at issues between authorities. The cross-boundary issues, if you like. And, they, and the reports that came back to that was variable. And corporate parenting bodies in all local authorities, whether that's the Safeguarding Children's Boards or wherever effectively weren't routinely provided with reports about missing children. So that there's another um, strategic gap there that was actually highlighted by this Ofsted report. Now, at the very end of it, it said that inspectors did see some evidence of imaginative work, preventative imaginative work. 
mainly in schools, but the actual uh, degree of attention provided to that, the resources provided for that, the time provided for that, was increasingly variable. And who knows, maybe the actual financial cuts to local authority budgets, this was just another casualty possibly. The actual kind of um, infrastructure of needed to actually take the best work towards working with missing children. Just another problem, if you like, in the way that we look after our children and in the way that we plan to protect our children. Thanks. Here we are, we've got Dr. Neil Thompson with us today. I'm really pleased to have you here, Neil. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, what I want to do is, for the listener's point of view, if we could just have a minute or so of you just talking a little bit about your own biography, your history, because, I mean, as far as I can gather, it's pretty varied within the social work field, at least. Could you give us an idea of, of a sort of quick biography of yourself? Yeah, of course. I started off my career in residential childcare in North Wales, which is where I'm from. Went from there into field social work. Uh, then I've also done hospital social work. I've been a team manager, a training officer, lecturer in social work, professor of social work. But for the last 16 years, I've had what I like to call a portfolio career, which means I'm self-employed and do all sorts of things, run training courses, act as a consultant to various organizations. I do expert witness work, and I continue to write and do related matters around editing and so on. Right. Now, you've also become a very successful author, haven't you? And you've developed a whole range of products that actually are now available to those in the social world. Um, can you just give us a bit of an idea about, A, a where we'd find your previous kind of work, but also what you're currently involved with? Yeah, sure. Well, I've got a, a, a personal well website, which is uh, www.neilthompson.info, which gives a lot of background information about my work, my, my, my history, my publications, and so on. There's also a blog there that people can sign up to get it, uh, updates mm -hmm. if they're interested. But in terms of um, what I've been working on uh, in, for the last uh, 16 years, uh, since I went freelance, um, I um, run a company called Avenue Media Solutions, and that's www.avenuemediasolutions.com. And there's information there about uh, the range of uh, products and services I've been developing. What it's all about, basically, is that when I was university-based, I was working with groups of students on a regular basis. So I got that regular contact and could influence their practice, but then I was only working with um, a relatively limited number of people. So in going freelance, I switched the focus to I now don't have that regular contact with people, but I'm working with large numbers of people. And, mm. and that's what I'm trying to do, is to influence theory and practice on a, on a, a, a bigger stage, in a sense. Fine. Well, could you just tell us a little bit about one or two of the, the, the actual products that you've got on the market right now that we actually can point people in the direction of? Yeah. 
I mean, the, the main focus of my work over the last 16 years has been training, consultancy, expert witness services, mediation, and related uh, matters. But um, in the last year or two, I've been switching my focus towards online learning to, because I think that's the future. I don't believe the hype about how e-learning will eventually completely replace face-to-face -face, uh, training. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But there is an important role for e-learning. So I've been mm. developing a number of e-learning courses. And, and to complement those, I've also developed um, uh, what I call the Avenue Professional Development Program, which is an online learning community. So it's not a course as such. It's, uh, it's a, a, a supportive online community tutored by myself, where people pay a sub subscription to be a member and then they're part of this um, community where there is the opportunity to discuss their learning, to um, be supported in that learning by myself and by um, other members of the online community. Right. Okay. How can people get a hold of it? I know through your website, and I know, but you're, you're, we're going to do some work together, aren't we? Yeah, that's that, that's right. I mean, I'm, uh, what I'm hoping to develop is to be able to work with. Um, you know, highly respected people like your good self um, to get the message across about the value of um, e-learning in general and the online professional development program in particular. Mm -hmm. And so people can access now uh, what you've developed uh, either on the websites, your own ones that you've said, or on our website uh, as well where we're actually going to be promoting your work and I hope start a good collaboration. Just, I mean, it's all very well as saying what you've actually developed and actually now pointing people in that right direction, which is quite good for the actual work you've done is substantial. But just generally about social work as a final comment, Neil, what do you see the challenges at the moment as far as social workers are concerned? You know, because, you know, we've both been around for quite some time and seen things come and go. But what's your take on it at the moment? Well, I, I think we're facing a major challenge because, in a sense, I think from a, a political level, what we're witnessing is the dismantling of the welfare state. And that's putting immense pressure on practicing social workers and others involved in the, the, the social care field more broadly. And as I see it, social work is by its very nature um, about dealing with difficult, challenging situations. You know, if there weren't problems, we wouldn't be involved in situations. And part of social work for me is about trying to make sure that, that we do the best we can in difficult circumstances rather than make a, a difficult situation worse. So for me, the major challenge is around morale and values because what I've been seeing in working with different groups is uh, a lot of low morale, a lot of people losing sight of their values, which is understandable in the present circumstances with so much pressure, so many difficulties, with social work not being as appreciated as fully as it uh, should be. So what we've got now, I think, is a situation where um, uh, the low morale uh, situation creates negativity, can lead to cynicism. And so instead of um, trying to make the best of difficult circumstances, we're in a situation now where sometimes the low morale makes a bad situation worse. So to come back to your question, the, 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 I think for me, 
the main challenge is to get past low morale, reaffirm our professional values and do the best we can in difficult circumstances. Neil Thompson, thank you very much indeed for your time. All the very best. Yes, cheers. Thank you. Often, very, very strange events produce results that have got ramifications all through history. I was looking through the history of child protection services in America, and I came across this story from 1874. Uh, A nine-year-old girl who had been living with her guardians in, in Hell's Kitchen in New York. She was routinely beaten and neglected, And there was a missionary, a religious missionary, was visiting somebody nearby and became very aware of the trauma that this girl was suffering. And she determined that she was going to do something about it and actually try and even rescue this child. Now, in these days in America, the same as in the UK, effectively, there was quite a pervasive thought that the family was all important and that people should not interfere in family matters. But uh, as there was no um, childcare charities then or no specific charities to do with child protection, the only place that this uh, missionary could go to uh, was the uh, American Association and the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And so she went and talked to the head of that, uh, who was terribly reluctant at the beginning to actually do anything even if he thought that he could. But he talked to his lawyer, and eventually they got a variant of the writ of habeas corpus to remove the child from our guardians. And this came about in the following way. They took the matter to court, and this child had to be described on the paperwork as a small animal because there was nothing at the time to do with child protection available in legal redress. So the the matter went through court as if this child was a small animal in need of protection. And, in fact, she was. She was. They were granted this writ of habeas corpus. The child was removed and placed with a much uh, more caring and kind of uh, proper family. Another matter that I thought we should have a little look at when we're looking at the beginnings of the uh, Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in New York, this was, this was the New York Society, was that um, the news of its creation spread and that by 1922 about 300 non-governmental child protection societies actually had sprung up and were scattered across America. And That gave rise to another institution that we all know well today, which was juvenile courts. And the first juvenile court in the world was in Chicago in 1899. The concept spread quickly, and by 1919, so only in 20 years, all states but three in America had juvenile courts. And of course today, that court is an absolute pivotal player in the whole child protection system. Just some interesting facts. Anyway, 
what I'm hoping to do is let you have some more of these as time goes by in this podcast because I think it's it's terribly important that we balance the heavy, serious, terrible, traumatic stories that we all hear, the, 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 the awful things I've been talking about to do with missing children and the volume and the numbers of children in this world that actually are missing with a little bit of light-hearted relief because you just can't go through life without just a little bit of a balance. So, thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.